Hi, I'm Eduardo Lopez, and this is the State of Public Education podcast, where we examine the past, present, and future of public education. I'm recording the introduction to the second podcast. I have just finished the first week of the fall quarter at UCLA. It's an exciting time. Um, there's a lot of energy and anticipation in starting classes. I really enjoy meeting all of my new students. And as I'm thinking about working with, with first year teachers, I'm also thinking of uh, the national context in which uh, teaching is being conducted this year um, with all the attacks and the book bannings that are going on and the attacks on the LGBT communities and students. And so today I'm excited that I have Dr. Mina Humphrey that I'm interviewing today about her experiences growing up in Arkansas, her research focus on children's literature, and her advice about for new teachers entering the profession. I hope you enjoy. So welcome to the, the State of Publication podcast. This is our first interview, even though Logistically, I've been recording other in interviews, but in the timeline, this is going to be the very first interview with Dr. Amina Humphrey, and I'm very honored and privileged that you are here with me today. <laughs> Welcome, Dr. Amina Humphrey. Drop that, Humphrey. Just call me Dr. Amina, huh? <laughs> yes. Or Amina Amen, the artist, the scholar. Yes. Glad to be here with my buddy. Um, I, I, I invited you here because, um, you know, we known each other for a number of years. But one of the things that also fascinates me is also the, the work that specifically that you do around, um, children's literature. And so I wanted to first kind of start by asking you, like, how how did you get um interested in this, in this topic of children's literature? I grew up on a farm in rural Arkansas, very segregated, and. Uh, I had to deal with white supremacy 24-7, even in school. And I love to read. And being in such a community, you know, books, whenever I could find them or magazines, uh, gave me an outlook to the world. You know, growing up on my grandmother's farm, it, um, you know, she had a limited education. Uh, she and the family coming up had to pick cotton, and they missed out on a lot of their education. Reparations, honey, when they should have been in the school, right? They are picking cotton. And that's why I'm a firm proponent of reparations. But with that said, I digress. So let's just say we didn't have a library in the home. Books were limited. And you asked me, how did I get involved with children's literature? Well, back in the day, you know, uh, 70s and 80s and all of that, it was... Um, what was it? Ebony Jr. right on magazine. It was Ebony Magazine. It was Jet. And so those were the things that I had access to. But once I, um, you know, went to school and started reading and I was just a voracious reader um, around my farm chores, because as grandmother would say, you got too much book sense, but no common sense. And I'm like, <laughs> wrong grandmother. 
I got both. I got a double package. But you don't tell that to the elders. But you understand where they come from because, again, they had to pick that cotton. So education education from my grandmother, well, uh, traditional education was not at the forefront. It was, you know, we got to survive. And I guess she couldn't see me always in those books when I, when, uh, you know, she wanted me working the farm. And I did work the farm, but I also wanted to read my books. So uh, going back to your question, it was um, just loving books and then noticing a pattern of where where am I in this book? I don't see me. That's a problem. I'm reading all these books, you know, the white supremacist canon, but I don't see me. And so that was sort of like how I got involved with doing, as we say now, culturally responsive and sustainable, you know, teaching and, and learning and reading. Uh, but back then it was, I don't see me and how can I make it happen? And so uh, I just started from that trajectory beyond right on magazine, Ebony Junior, um, Jet, Ebony, the staples in many black people's homes in America, just trying to find more representation in children's books and young adult books and just books in general by, by black authors. And uh, yeah, that's so that's where it began from a lack uh, for a love of reading and noticing a lack of. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you then eventually you, you went on the, and you did your, your dissertation on this topic, right? Yeah, I um, met Dr. Beverly Robinson uh, from UCLA. I was 16 years of age and uh, governor's school is sort of like where they bring out the bright students from every school, I guess, in the state to experience what is similar to college to expose them to like this college world so you had professors from around the country who would come for a short period of time and talk about their work and I met Dr. Beverly Robinson and she uh was at UCLA uh I believe uh maybe film film or television that that field that area but she focused on um plays African-American theater history and I learned a lot about the African diaspora. And I didn't even know. And this is what I said. I was so country. Hadn't, had been, hadn't been exposed to the world. You mean to tell me I can go and get a degree about Black people? Oh, my God. <laughs> I can go to college and learn about Black people? Why? Because I've been educating that white supremacist canon, the Mark Twains, the Samuel Langhorne Clemens of the world, Huckleberry Finn and all that, you know, where, you know, they use the word nigga and then, here in the classroom, you, you know, the little reading centers, literature circles, and oh, nigger. And then when you go into the playground, you become that nigger. I think it was only just three or four of us in our classrooms of African-Americans. And, you know, the teacher at that time, of course, didn't preface it with the proper context. There was no back building background knowledge. There was no responsible language around how to handle the word nigger when you read it in the text. And know your classmates aren't niggers. Samuel Langhorne Clemens, Mark Twain was trying to make some type of statement, I'm assuming, with slavery and beyond. Or maybe not. Maybe I'm giving him too much uh, leeway there. But with that said, I wanted to see more of us. I wanted to learn about us because I was sick of learning about the other. That's all I had heard my whole life. So I wanted to know more about Black people. And, you know, my little worldview was Black American people. But then I started learning about African people and I started learning about um, the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade, and, and learning from Dr. Beverly Robinson that there was life and death chained together in, in the, on that ship. 
Uh, women were having babies. Um, people were dying right next to them shackled for months. And so it really put a real, it put a face on the incredible suffering that a people had to go through to get here to be a part of this un, unpaid for centuries labor force to build this country. She instilled that in me because I definitely wasn't getting in white supremacist public schools in, in Locksburg, Arkansas. So that began my love affair with learning about number one, blackness, specifically the African diaspora, slavery. Um, and then I wanted to read more about it. And I was exposed to um, some great people once I made it to UCLA. Um, went to uh, undergrad at Henderson State University for my degree in English and uh, certification, especially in a minor in journalism. I was awarded one of four Daisy Bates scholarships uh, for, um, for school. It paid for four years of school. And Daisy Bates, if you don't know, uh, she helped to lead the Little Rock Nine. She is an activist, journalist, and, and beyond philanthropist, you know, uh, in helping to break down Central, Central High School. And so the scholarship is named in her honor. And it was an honor for me to meet her and an honor for me to um, receive the scholarship in her name. Now, here we go to small town USA and small town thinking. I graduated valedictorian of my school. I was working on the assembly line, putting together chainsaws and weed eaters and, and a valedictorian. But I didn't see myself as a valedictorian. I only saw myself as you know, graduating and getting getting the hell up out of there. Um, and yes, I've been exposed to Beverly Robinson at UCLA and I'm like, one day I'm gonna go there. But then the reality of work sets in and just trying to survive and leave small town USA. So I got this scholarship and I can't recall either I had applied to schools and didn't go or hadn't applied yeah, I think that's what it was. I think I hadn't hadn't even applied, gotten a scholarship, and here it is, August, and I'm trying to get a job going from putting chainsaws and weed eaters together on the assembly line to, oh, let me get a good job at the chicken plant. I share that story because a lot of my classmates were in the same boat. I think we had six or seven in a class of, what was it, less than 28, less than 30 people, six or seven young girls pregnant before we even graduated. I think they started like 10th, 10th and 11th grade having their babies. And the expectation is to graduate and get, get that good post office job, get that um, good job at Walmart, get you a job at uh, McDonald's or timber, many go into the timber business, go and go and work the assembly lines with no union representation. So that's a whole other story about the exploitation. So here I am, graduated valedictorian. My cousin graduated valedictorian. My aunt graduated valedictorian. She was the first. And small town USA white supremacy was like, uh, this nigga is valedictorian. Yeah, and I heard that. I heard the rumblings. Uh, yeah, this nigga is valedictorian. What you gonna do? My Two of my family members before me, what? Right, what? We are intelligent people, contrary to the stereotype. Always have been, always will be. Shout out to my people. But with that said, 
I still had the context around me, my environment. You got a scholarship to go to college and you want to sit here and go from valedictorian and all the struggles you had to go through with white supremacy to work on that chicken plant line. You're on the assembly line. You're not going to go to the chicken plant line. So I will tell you this, a white teacher intervened. She had been a mentor. Um, this ain't no blind side story. So it ain't going to end like that. <laughs> Don't get it twisted. But that white woman, in spite of the white supremacy around her and the white supremacy context that looks like her, she felt she found it in her heart to mentor me and to help me. And that white, I'm gonna say it right now, that white woman went to bat for me when it was too late, when I thought it was too late to go to college. She advocated to the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville as well as Henderson State University, where a number of my family members had gone. And I was able to get into Henderson State University, I believe late. Instead of graduating valedictorian and going to um, uh, going to college, my thing was valedictorian going to work. She, I'm so glad she intervened. I lived in a little place, $60 a week. Roaches everywhere, the bed, the toilet, the refrigerator. And I, and I look back on that life, and maybe I'm speaking to somebody listening to this podcast, but situations are temporary. I'm no longer in that roach infested $60 a week um, apartment working on the assembly line for, uh, what was it, carrier chainsaws and weed eaters and all that. Uh, I went on to college. And yes, I did struggle. I struggled because um, it's the whole new experience of it all. And, mm -hmm. feeling, and I didn't have the words then. I know the word now, the words, imposter syndrome small town USA and you in college chemistry was reading a book turning the pages but that's all the teacher did her lecture read a book turn a page I've learned so much more that chemistry is more than reading and turning a page it's engagement with mod, mod, model was it models and all of that I didn't have that I didn't have a, I don't re recall spending a lot of time in a lab and getting familiar with the lab equipment so for me it was really intimidating going into college and feeling like I didn't have the necessary math. Well, not math. I, I excelled with math, but for, for sure, some of the science background and chemistry and all of that. But with that said, it had its own challenges. And believe it or not, even though I had a scholarship, I still had to work. And um, I was an independent student, so I had to have a roof over my head. So I, I still ended up working at the chicken plant. And at the chicken plant, let me tell you, that's another education because growing up on the farm and slaughtering animals and working the farm is one thing, but being in the assembly line and seeing what goes down with our foods, interview me about that story. You'll never eat chicken again. <laughs> uh, but with that said, you had people coming from Oklahoma, Louisiana. I don't know. Did they come from Texas? Can you imagine getting on a bus? at three or four o'clock in the morning to make it to the chicken plant by six o'clock to work in Arkansas. And I think my, my hourly rate was five something an hour. So that was the education of Lord. Okay. I got a scholarship. I'm taking five and six classes. I better do something because I cannot do this life. The chicken plant was its own education. And I feel, I still feel for the people who work there and there's no labor. I mean, no uh, union, I should say. Union representation. So that you can imagine the exploitation. Mm 
once I made it through my program, Dr. Beverly Robinson had planted a seed. I want to go to UCLA. I want to study Black people. Specifically, I want to get into African-American studies and writing. Um, but uh, my trajectory was sort of curved and I ended up doing African-American studies with a specialization in children's literature. Um, and I got into UCLA with then? Yeah. Hmm. 1997. I, the expectation was that I would be a school teacher. But yeah, that's where I was exposed to children's literature. And that's where I was also exposed to taking classes in graduate school of education with uh, Saul Cohen and Daniel Solorsano and meeting also Douglas Kellner and taking his class. And uh, from there, my mind just exploded because critical race theory, this is the late 90s. Wow, my background is in African-American studies. I see a trajectory here. I love, I'm loving this idea of children's literature, meeting Mitzi Myers and Dr. Valerie Smith, who Valerie Smith is my mentor, was my mentor. And now she's for president of a college, but back then she was in the department in the English department in African-American studies. And that along with her guidance, along with Dr. Mitzi Myers, the children's literature specialist uh, expert, that's where I started looking at history and the representation of black children and children's picture books. And as you can see, as of last week, the stereotypes of how black children were presented in children's books. And it's at your fingertips. It, it ain't 25, 50, 75 years ago. It is last week on eBay. You can find all types of races, children's memorabilia on eBay. Mostly, sell, so, mostly sold by white people. And many of these books are going for a hundred plus dollars. So I'm very interested in the role and representation of black children in children's literature going from my experience down south of not seeing the representation to how have representations been demonstrated in the past and where are we with a contemporary perspective more inclusive more diverse and more african-american authors and illustrators having the opportunity to tell the story and how does this connect to critical race theories tenant of the voices and experiences of people of color matter it matters in children's literature okay. because it's propaganda so can, can you talk about, for example, some of those themes that you noticed um, in the earlier representations in children's books, um, and then how either you're seeing them still either remain or shifting as you're looking at um, literature now? Well, um, the earlier themes, and um, Marlon Riggs would be a, a really good mm -hmm. reference point mm -hmm. here with ethnic notions and the stereotypes of Black people in pop culture and beyond. Um, it was the same phenomenon, you know, uh, Little Black Sambo. Who do you know named Little Black Sambo? That's a first, the first step with the dehumanization pro process. Most people have a first, middle, and last name, but Little Black Sambo, Black Mumbo, and Black Jumbo. And so it's the erasure through names. It is the visuals uh, where you have children, Little Black Sambo, I'm just using him as a, a metaphor, but looking animalistic, not even looking human in some of the depictions. I have over a hundred books of Little Black Sambo because I call it America's favorite racist children's book. And, and beyond eBay, go on over to Amazon. You can buy it on Amazon too. 
So when I look at the representations, it also was a reflection of popular opinion. Jim Crow popular opinion of Black people with an attack on Black children. So it, so the attack on Black people started from infancy all the way up to adulthood. So you could imagine being exposed to these types of images and the impact that it would have on a child sitting in a classroom in America listening to Little Black Sambo or Little Brown Coco or all of these other types of figures. Um, and also the psychological impact on white children because they were never represented as animalistic. They looked like human beings and they had names. Mm. See, Dick and Jane run. Mm. They're not little black Sambo. So for what I've noticed to answer your question is dehumanization through text, naming, the experience, uh, and dehumanization through the visuals. And that's why I study children's picture books because there are two, two or more narratives going in regards to visual illustration and, and meaning as well as textual meaning. Now that's history. Contemporary, you see more authentic representations. And I, you know, honestly, you see people of color, and my focus is African-American, but people of color in general who are now illustrators, more illustrators, more authors, and I would dare say more authentic representations of what it means to be a human being in this black body. You don't get that from historical children's texts where white people, white supremacy is telling the story because I don't know if truth, I okay, let me put being rhetorical here. Truth wasn't, truth wasn't where it was at. It was reinforcing propaganda of inferiority beginning with pre-K, all the way up. So what do I tell parents? You, media is very important. Take your child to the museum. That's media. Affirm the beauty of a people. The books that you have in your home, be very selective. Is this an authentic human experience, right? Or is this a stereotypical experience? Do you want your child to consume those meanings? Or do you want your child to consume things where they can leave your house and feel I'm empowered I'm black and I'm proud. I'm brown and I'm proud. Because this world that we live in, and I hope, I don't know. You know, I'm not going to tell my age because that's not your business. But let's just say I've been on planet Earth for a minute. And I hope that sometime in my life that we will have true racial equality. I was on Crenshaw and 43rd on Saturday. The t-shirt man was out. He had Martin Luther King's shirt on the table for sale. You, you want a Martin Luther King shirt with I Have a Dream? I said, no. Maybe if you had a T-shirt with Dr. King that said, I have a nightmare. Sell me that. I'll wear that. We thank God for Dr. King and everybody else leading the movement. He had a dream, and it has been a continual nightmare in regards to equality on all forms in white supremacist America. And like if 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 there was an elementary teacher who is approaching you and says, you know, I, what would be some books that you like or would recommend um, to you be using in their classroom? What would you what would you say? Well, I love research and data. So number one, 
who who's in your classroom? No, teacher, who's in your classroom? And have you ever asked the children what do they like to read? What engages them? Because I, you know, I'm talking about you know the content of books, but it's also reader readers and engagement. Do you like sci-fi? You know, do you like fantasy? Um, do you like his, you know, realism and, and historical text, historical, basically historical fiction, historical nonfiction? And then from there, I would also go to different websites. Educate yourself because you're not going to get it all in your educational programs. You're going to have to work at decolonizing the mind. Teachers, myself, everybody, decolon work on decolonizing your mind. Go to a museum. Go to your local bookstore. See what's being published. Compare and contrast. Read reviews. I go to the social justice uh, books website because I'm all about social justice, as we all should be. But with that said, there's a social justice website dedicated to all of these themes in children's and young adult books. And not just for Black people. This is for various racial ethnic groups. Children, if you want to know more about who you are, if you want to race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, go to the social justice book site. Now, I do know that schools have their very conservative, um, what is it, book lists. And I do know schools are under attack, especially in the Satan state of Florida. These former slaveholding states, Florida, Texas, and all parts in between. Lay off a critical race theory. Lay off your librarians. And quit using threats of firing them if they introduce social justice progressive texts. Let society evolve. We're not trying to go back to Jim Crow, even though you want us to. We're not going there. But yeah, that, that's what I would say to teachers. Educate yourself beyond what you have in the classroom. Be inquisitive. Social justice books. Go to independent bookstores. Look online for um, various sources. Uh, PEN, P-E-N. I love their website because it gives you data on books and banned books and suggested books. I love it. So literacy and social justice, there are websites out there, and I've given you a few. I use them in my own classroom, actually. But are there any children's books that you like that you would use? Yeah. Here we go. A place where some flowers grow. I try to use social. Okay, check this out. Beyond just African-American children's books, uh, I I teach a general children's literature class. Mm -hmm. And so I look at various racial ethnic groups. And that this is one of the books that I really love. I also love this one because they're not trying to teach about Africa in the classroom. Africa, amazing Africa. Mafaro's Beautiful Daughters. That's another one. Mafaro's Beautiful Daughters. It shows the beauty of African-American uh, children. I Like Anything by Mr. Tom Fillings. Mr. Tom Fillings, Something on My Mind. Uh, I love the illustrator, Kadir Nelson. Anything Kadir Nelson is illustrating, I'm trying to buy. Kadir Nelson. Um, my favorite children's picture book of all time. I really can't say that I have a favorite children's picture book of all time. What I can say is that I like social justice texts dealing with sexual identity, 
gender, race, and class, intersectionality in children's text. So I like them all. Julian at the wedding. That's, that's, I love that. Julian is a mermaid. I love it. Be amazing with your colorful self. A history of pride. And my rainbow about this black child who identifies as being a transgender. So I don't have a favorite book. I have books that I like that, it, that address critical race theory and uh, intersectionality and social justice. And those are a few. Hold on. My favorite book of all time is The Middle Passage by Tom Fillings, because that's just not a children's picture book. It's a family book. Well, what would you say to, um, and you mentioned it a little bit with the, with the book banning, but what would you say to a, a teacher who, an elementary teacher who says, Dr. Humphrey, I'm really, I want to do this, but I'm scared of using these texts because then parents might push back. Step into your purpose. Quit being scared. Stand on the shoulders of your ancestors. That's what I do when I feel any type of apprehension. Do you know getting your head kicked in, beat in, water shot on you, dogs run after you, and you're scared about introducing a book in the classroom? Take a chance. Now, if you're in Texas and, and Mississippi and Florida, you're going to have to weigh the pros and cons. The climate is different than California. In these former slaveholding states, they're still trying to revert back to Jim Crow and the antebellum South. It's anti-intellectualism. Anti so my thing is, weigh the pros and cons of those situations. Or do you have what it takes to stand up for social justice if you are in a climate that is not supportive of you trying to do the right thing and evolve society through diverse children's picture books, social justice books? We cannot be anti-intellectuals. It, 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 I mean, like, it is embarrassing that we have schools that are banning books by James Baldwin, Toni Morrison, uh, Alice Walker, Dr. And Maya Angelou. You have to ask why. So for teachers, you have to ask yourself why you got into the profession. And then you have to ask yourself, what is the risk? And am I willing to step up to the challenge? You have to look at yourself in the mirror and be confident in who you are. Yeah. And just know that you're advocating on behalf of the children. Because at one point in time, we couldn't even go to school. And now we're just trying to advocate to have books that look like us in the school. And now we're in a situation where librarians and teachers may lose their jobs for introducing some of the texts or the concepts of critical race theory. And it's shameful. It's shameful that the political climate is now infiltrating our public schools in this manner. And there's a fear. Silencing teachers. Yeah, I think that's... Silencing of teachers and the silencing of librarians. And go to that Penn website, people. Educate yourself. I, I love Penn's website and how they are literacy social justice advocates and showing you the data of where all of this is happening in the country. I love it. And I, and I also would think that if, as a teacher, um, are there other people on your campus who are also going to support you? Is your administration also going to support you? Like you're saying, to be able to weigh 
um, the pros and cons of it. And also, too, do you have parents who are also going to be supporting you so that you don't stand um, isolated and alone in that process? Are okay. Don't expect administration because they maintain the system of oppression yeah. in schools. Mm-hmm. So don't expect administrators to do anything. And if you do have a friendly one, they're probably going to do it on a down low so they don't lose their six-figure job. Teachers, your best advocate are parents. Snap, snap, clap, clap. Why? Because parents believe in a good teacher and they, they will support you. So your best ally, so you don't feel alone. Because it's lonely being that first year teacher. It's lonely taking a risk and introducing a book that you think may be controversial. But I would also say too, um, talk to some of your teachers there too as well, because there have been situations going back to the book, Nappy Hair, where a white teacher thought she was imparting great knowledge to her black and brown students. And, uh, oh, that was a no-no. So everything with wisdom and research. Yeah, do make sure when you make your, take your risk that it's in consultation with uh, wisdom and research because not all books should be addressed in the classroom. I can't believe it. I'm gonna give you a prime example. I didn't know we'd be talking about this today. Grandpa, I think the name of the book is Grandpa is Everything Black Bad. You think I'm going to introduce that book to the kids? <laughs> pre-K, pre-K, kindergarten. Grandpa is everything black bad. And as you walk, as you turn the pages, there's the color black and association is mm. black cat and this. Anyway, now wow. I'm not going to introduce that. So to answer your question, social justice, what uplifts the people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Grandpa is everything. And, and I I don't know who the author and illustrator is, and I'm not trying to diss your book. I just don't use it because I don't feel like it's a great book to introduce to students about what it means to be a human being who identifies as Black. Grandpa is everything Black bad. You don't want children children who are Black or children white, children who identify as Latino or Latina, walking out your classroom. Grandpa is everything Black bad because that puts a negative connotation on the child. Now, that book, could be used um, maybe as a critique of living in a white supremacist society, but definitely not in, here we are in reading engagement fun, and I'm going to enter, no, no, no. So you have to use wisdom and research in making your decision and let social justice guide you too. Yes. Very powerful words, Um, uh, uh, Amina, as you as you're thinking about this subject and thinking about, you know, the context of education, um, just kind of as we we end here towards the end, one of the questions I also, I also just kind of like to ask folks is as um, what, what kind of just general either wisdom or advice do you give uh, folks who are entering the teaching profession at this critical historical moment, uh, what would you say to them? There are a couple of things. Be comfortable with saying white supremacy. Not a lot of people are. And when you say white supremacy, what does it mean? Have you internalized it? Have you analyzed it on the job? When you go to get a loan? When you try to get a house? Medicare? Yeah. So first thing, what is white supremacy and how does it impact people? How have we tried to decolonize our minds 
and step into these buzzwords that I hear often, freedom and liberation. So that's one thing. And then the second, the second thing you asked me, when you step out and you do something sometimes for the first time, there's a risk involved. And sometimes you may step out and do it and think you got all the support after you've weighed the pros and cons. So I'm gonna share this for you with the audience and with you, because I've learned this through experience. Sometimes social justice ain't just. Sometimes you're gonna have to be alone. And the people that you thought who are justice, woke, they just fall to the wayside and it's just you. Looking in the mirror, thinking about what is today going to bring and how will I be able to make it, survive, thrive, self-care and challenge systemic structures while maintaining this physical body. So I share something else. Make sure that rest and self-care are a part of the equation. Mental health is so very important. Your physical health is so very important because it does take a toll, these attacks. So those are some things that I would say to people that I didn't get coming up. Take care of yourself so that you can do the work. If you see something in your schedule where you can just do a staycation in your mind, maybe you got a day, go to the museum. Maybe you got a day, you can go to the beach, play a drum, sing, you know, walk. Take care of your physical and mental health in order to have longevity in this profession, as well as to continue to have a passion for it. Take care of yourself. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Amina. That was really, really beautiful. And I thank you to, for your time um, coming here today. Well, I thank you for the opportunity. I do. And uh, I hope someone can be inspired. I'll also say this too. I love art. And art has really been uh, my go-to. And I hope that people will also make art a part of their daily lives as well, especially in introducing it to children and helping it be a part of their daily lives too. Because you know, the first thing that is cut in our public schools, urban public schools particularly, are the arts. So I hope art is a part of everybody's life and continue to move forth in your purpose and your passion, people. Don't let anyone deter you. I just have to say that. Don't let anything or anyone deter you in your purpose or your passion and let art be a part of your daily life. The end. I, sh I say an amen. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> yes, I've given you the sermon today and I'm done. <laughs> Gracias a Dios. That's it for today's episode. Please make sure you share it and like us. And if you know of someone or maybe yourself would like to be in here for this podcast, you can reach me at the state of public education at gmail.com. Thank you and have a good day.